Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Well, it is Mother's Day, but I bet you didn't know this. In 1876, Frederick Augusta Bertoldi uh, was commissioned to build a statue uh, that, is, that was known as Liberty Enlightening the World. We know it as the Statue of Liberty. But do you know this, that, um, that when that was built, if you hold a portrait up of Frederick's mom against a, a picture of the Statue of Liberty, their faces are the same. The model for the Statue of Liberty uh, built by Frederick Augusta Bertoldi was his mom. And I tell you that because of this. Moms, you have way more influence than you ever thought. And there's a powerful thing that God has given you in your life as a role. And uh, to be truthful about it, that's a lot of pressure too, isn't it? It feels like, man, I'm going to get the credit for my kid's success. And I'm going to get the blame for when they don't do it well, right? <laughs> hey, listen, on Mother's Day, this is a mixed room with a mixed, a lot, a lot of mixed emotions. Sometimes it can be a tremendous uh, feeling of honor. Uh, there's also a sense of, oh gosh, did I do it well? Did I fail at it? And some of you ha- who haven't been able to, to be moms and you want to, that's in the room too. And so there's a whole mix in this room. I want to say this, that God's presence and love and power and plan sits over all of that, that he loves you, that his grace is enough for you. And at the same time, moms, can we just say, we want to honor you today and just say congratulations on this Mother's Day. Amen. So today we're going to begin a new series. All right. We're going to begin a new series called Resilient Church. Um, in, let's see, five days from now, Church on the Hill is going to be celebrating their 173rd anniversary. Okay, this is a big deal. Now, put this in perspective. That means that this church began as the First Baptist Church of San Jose four months before California became a state. I mean, think about it. When they signed this document into agreement, they probably rode a horse home. Um, This church has lasted this long because God is faithful. That is always first and foremost. He has shown his favor on this group of people that gather here. But truth be told, too, it's not just God's faithfulness. It is a resilient group of people that have been walking with Jesus, who have said, no, we're going to gather. This is my church. This is first God's church, but it's my church, the place I call my church family. And because of that, um, we're going to celebrate. Um, It is interesting, though. um, Sometimes, well, I'll say this, all the time, resilience is built in tough times. I don't know if you know this, but um, on May 5th of this year, It was just a week ago, the World Health Organization, they actually declared an end to the global public health emergency of COVID-19. Did you know that? They declared it. It's not that it doesn't exist anymore, but the, the public health emergency is over. But 
I'll bet you didn't know this. Three days before that, the U.S. Surgeon General declared a new epidemic. You know what it is? Loneliness. That was the new epidemic that our Surgeon General just pronounced. And he he made a couple of comments. He went on to explain that millions of people in America are struggling in the shadows, is what he called it. He compared it to hunger and to thirst, saying it's a feeling that the body sends us when something we need for survival is missing. It's the reminder that we're created for community and that we cannot do this thing alone. And the message of the scriptures is this, that God loves you and he's with you and he's given a family for you to do life with. Um, Because of this, I think it sounds like a good time to do a series called Resilient Church. So where in the Bible are we going to turn? Where in the Bible are we going to turn to find a message of encouragement for a church in challenging times? Here's where we're going to do. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation. If you know where that is, it's in the back. It's right before the book of maps. So open your Bibles, go to the book of Revelation, and... uh, When I told our staff this this last week, hey, we're going to do this like eight-week series in the the book of Revelation, four people out loud went, oh. And I was like, what do you mean, oh? And honestly, all four of them meant something different. But So let me say it this way. I think there's probably four approaches to the book of Revelation that probably aren't all that healthy. The the first is this. It's fear. Why? Because that book is scary. Right? I mean, there are dragons, beasts, judgment, and fire. And some people are like, no, 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 thank you. I got enough stuff in my life that's freaking me out. I don't need to read that. That book is scary. Other people, they read nothing but Revelation. It's like their favorite book. Go to any high school, middle school ministry in any church and be like, what book do you guys want to read together? Revelation. It's like their own spiritual Harry Potter book, right? That's all they want to read. Other people, um, they read it because there's a little bit of pride. Because in that letter, it's vengeful. They're like, I'm a Christian, and I live around a lot of wicked people, and the book of Revelation is just a reminder that they'll get theirs. Dude, that's not cool. (laughs) And it's not a good way to read this book. Here's another one. Sometimes people just avoid it because it's intimidating. They read it and they just don't know what to make of it. And so they just leave it alone. They're intimidated mainly because we're so unfamiliar with what is known as apocalyptic literature. It's a genre of literature that most of us, we just never read. We don't understand it. Now, when I say the word apocalypse, you know what that word means? Most people think it means the end of the world. That's not actually what the word apocalypse means. It means this. It means to uncover or to reveal. An apocalypse is a revelation. It's when God pulls back the curtain of the world and shows people what's really going on in the world that you might not see. Some examples of, um, in the Old Testament of apocalyptic literature, you'll find in the book of Daniel, in the book of, parts of the book of Joel, parts of Zechariah, and parts of Isaiah. If you go to the New Testament, I mean, Revelation, the whole thing is apocalyptic literature because it is revealing something that is going on behind the scenes. Now, here's what's super interesting about it is most people think it's all just about what's in the future. 
majority of Revelation is about what was going on in the first century when God is pulling back the curtain and going, look at what's going on right now. It also, though, speaks about the future. By the way, just so we get this really clear right off the bat, it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation, okay? Um, In this genre of apocalyptic literature, there's gonna be strange images. There's gonna be poetic language. For example, um, when it refers to the sea, the sea is a place of chaos and danger. Appropriately so. Have you ever been in the sea In like the open ocean, I mean, it's dangerous, it's chaotic. The things that come out of the sea in the book of Revelation are beasts and things like that. They're things of danger and chaos. So it's interesting, you get these symbols and sometimes the writer will explain what the symbols mean and other times they just don't. And sometimes the writer, when he talks about them, he assumes that the person reading this letter is so familiar with the scriptures that you're already going to know what the symbolism is. You, you don't even need to refer to it. Like in a comic strip, right? If I referred to uh, donkeys and elephants, do you think I'm referring to the zoo? No, I'm referring to groups in our politics. And we would know that because we live, we live today and we're paying attention. When, here's, when this book is written in the first century, not all the symbolism is explained because he assumes that you're going to know what it is that he is talking about. But the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that we have hope for today and hope for tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to say that again. The purpose of it is... It's a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so we have hope for today and for tomorrow. So listen, instead of avoiding the book of Revelation or reading with pride or just loving it by itself and that's the only book we're gonna read, um, instead of fearing it, we're gonna study it. We're actually only gonna take a look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation in the next couple months because in there, Jesus gives this vision to this guy named John And he writes seven letters to seven different churches. But here's where we're going to head today. You ready? Here's the big picture. Four questions. What is Revelation? How should we read it? What is it about? And then what does Jesus's letter say to the church today? That's what we're going to answer. They're right there in your notes. You can totally follow along. This should be pretty easy to follow, even if you've never read the book of Revelation. So here it is. What is Revelation? Um, The writer is this apostle John. Uh, he actually wrote the story. It's believed that he wrote the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection in the gospel of John. He has a brother named James. Together, they were known as the sons of thunder. It might have to do with their personalities a little bit. John, though, he's in this, and it starts this, Revelation 1.1. Hopefully, you got your Bible open. Follow along with me. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which refers to the church, What must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. All right, I'm going to say it this way. What is Revelation? goes like this. And if you're taking notes, get ready to start writing. It's the word of God to the man of God 
from the Son of God to the people of God, revealing the heart of God. I mean, if you go back right through the text, it says, this is the word of God and the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is God's word. To who? To the man of God, John. From the son of God, Jesus, to the people of God. It is a message to the church, not to anybody else, but to the church. By the way, it's not an individual message to you or to you or to you. So when we interpret this, we're not going to turn around and go, well, you know, this is what I think revelation means to me. No, no, he wrote these letters to churches, not individuals, which begs this question. What kind of letter would Jesus write to church on the hill today? We'll get probably end on that today. It's the word of God to the man of God, from the son of God to the people of God, revealing the heart of God. If you could have revealed to you how God thinks about you, feels about you, what he has in store for you, wouldn't you want to know that? So we need to keep all of this in mind. In in any scripture, when we get lost in the imagery and we are unclear, uh, this statement is what we believe about the Bible. Uh, Let me say this again. What I read to you, which you just took notes on, this is what we believe about all the scriptures. Think about it. It is the word of God. It is the word of God that came to Luke, that came to Mark, that came to Paul, that these people who wrote down the words of God, they're not writing their own opinion. They're not writing down good ideas, their own instructions. They're actually writing down what they believe God wants them to write. And this comes in different forms. Sometimes they'll say, I heard God say this, and they wrote it down. Other times Luke says this, I've read a lot of the accounts of Jesus, but it seemed good to me to write a cohesive, a coherent story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So there's some common sense and some reason that the Holy Spirit is working through when he gives him God's word. But we believe this about the entire Bible. It is the word of God, and it's given to people. It comes about Jesus, from Jesus, and it's for the church And when you read it, you're reading the heart of God. Do you believe that when you read the Bible? This is why one of our highest values in our church is tattered Bibles. We say this, we've been wearing out Bibles since 1850. Why? Because we really believe that when we're reading it, we are reading the word of God that was not just for the time that it was written, but it is timeless so that it it speaks to us today. Just a question. Do you believe that? about the Bible. When you read it, you believe that God can speak to you today. Now, I don't know if you caught this in there, but verse three, how it ended, it ended with this little phrase, which is a reason why some people don't believe the Bible's relevant today. Did you catch it? It says this, because the time is near. Uh, what time is that? <laughs> right? Because maybe it was written 2000 years ago and you're like, okay, if the time is near, what do you mean near? And a lot of people are like, oh, the time is near for Jesus's return because a lot of the Bible, the book of Revelation is about the return of Jesus. And so it says, oh, the time is near. And you're like, here we are 2,000 years later. Still thinking the time is near. Listen, the, the book of Revelation was not just about the return of Jesus. It's about the suffering that that first century church was about to go through. And so when he writes, the time is near, John is actually probably referring to this, the time is near for the suffering that is about to increase in your world. So be ready. Um, 
If I go through this, how should we read Revelation? Look at verse four. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. There's not only a writer to this, but there's an audience to whom he is writing. And he will let us know which of these churches, what churches he's writing to in just a moment. We'll we'll get to that. But he writes this in about 96 AD. Now, if I asked you, hey, what what was one of the emperors in Rome that was persecuting the church? You'd probably come up with the name Nero, right? He's pretty famous, Nero, right? I mean, he persecuted the church. Did you know this? That Nero, his persecution really was, was limited to kind of the, the, the area of Rome, the city of Rome. And he was like in what, 61 AD, something like that? But it wasn't until 96 AD you get this emperor Domitian who had been in power for a, a decade or so that he started instituting what is known as emperor worship. That the Roman emperor is God and everyone within the Roman empire is to bow down and worship the emperor. You can see how that could create a problem for some Christians that we, no, 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 we believe in one God and he's found in the father, the son and the Holy spirit, not in the emperor of Rome. And because they would not bow down and worship, the penalty was death. John is writing to a church that already knew what it was to suffer But Domitian was the one who, for the first time, took all of this emperor worship, the demand for a sacrifice for the worship of an emperor, he took it to the edges of the Roman Empire, which encompassed the whole New Testament church. John's writing this to say, if you think it's bad now, hang on. It's about to get worse. He's writing this to a suffering church. So let's be clear on this. How should we read the book of Revelation? Number one is this. Revelation first is a message to the suffering first century church. It's a word of encouragement for them to be resilient, to not give up, to not turn tail and run, to stay focused on who Jesus is. Second, it's a timeless message to all the churches until Jesus returns. See, if we're going to read something that's just for a first century church, there might be some wisdom in it, if that's all it was. But we believe this, that God still speaks through his word today. And because in the final chapters of the book of Revelation, they have not come to fruition yet, we're living in between the first chapter and the last chapter somehow. And I believe that God wants to speak to us as a church through this. What is Revelation about then? So we're going to spend a little bit of time here before we wrap up. It's primarily about this. You ready? Jesus' power, presence, and plan. It's about Jesus' power, his might, his strength, his glory. It's about his presence, the fact that he's with us. And it's about the fact that he has a plan And his return is part of that plan. Let me read you. Go to chapter uh, one, verse four, halfway through 4b says this. Grace and peace to you from him. And then he begins to talk about his power. From him who is, meaning current day, who is, and then who was, meaning that he came before all things and who is to come. It's a reference to saying to the God who always has been, to the God who is present today, to the God who will be on the throne tomorrow. He starts talking about his power. And then he says, and from the seven spirits, 
before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is faithful, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You're going to learn pretty quick that the seven spirits that are before his throne, um, you're going to figure out that that is where Jesus is. He's in the midst of his churches. Trust me on that. I will get there in just a moment. And then if you look halfway through verse five, you get to his plan. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That is what he has done. It's what we celebrated in baptism, that people were shackled with sin. They're like, no, 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 I'm done. I'm following Jesus. I am forgiven. And that baptism is, is a symbol of the death of your old life and coming up brand new life, clean in Christ to follow him. That's what baptism is a symbol of. So Jesus has a plan. And from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the rulers, of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. So now he switches back to the statement about power. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. And then he finishes with his power. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last letters of, of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. To a church in the first century who might grow weary, he says, I want you to know this. Jesus is powerful and he's present with you. And he has a plan that he will execute in his time. That was to the first century church. I wonder if there's any churches that are struggling today, that are suffering and having difficulty. Let's be straight up honest about this. We don't suffer that much in the name of Jesus, right? We're here on a hill. Everyone in town knows that this building is here because they drive by it. We're not hiding anywhere. We're not in an underground church. We can freely come here and go without anyone in the parking lot ready to jump us, beat us up, take our money. We, we, don't, we don't live under persecution. It's hard in this valley sometimes, socially hard to be a Christian. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Hey, I went to church. You went to church. What? One of those people? And they don't mean it like in great terms, right? <laughs> but we don't live with this kind of persecution. But please don't make the mistake of thinking that your world is the world. Because around this world, more people die of persecution today than in the first century. Did you know that? This is about the power and the presence and the plan that Jesus will execute in his time. Second thing that this is about is this. It's the church's patient endurance in suffering. Verse nine says, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Let me read that again. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know what he was doing on the island of Patmos? He wasn't on vacation. He had been arrested, beaten, told to shut up and never say the name of Jesus again. And by the way, we're going to stick you on this island in exile. You cannot leave. Why did they do that? 
Because John was writing and speaking about Jesus and people were coming to to follow Christ. He was having a major influence in the first century. And they're like, we know what we'll do. We'll shut him up. We'll beat him up. We'll silence him. And we'll put him on an island so that no one will follow the name of Jesus. And here we are. 2,000 years later, with a third of the planet claiming to be Christians, two billion followers of Jesus. You see, when someone wants to silence the name of Jesus, it's just worthless chatter. Because no one can silence the name of Jesus. No one can stop the church because Jesus is building it. That's an amen and an amen. On the Lord's day, John says, I was in the spirit. We're not exactly sure what that meant. I mean, he's saying the Holy Spirit's taking over him. And I was in the spirit on this Sunday and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said this, here's his instructions. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And here's the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, in modern-day Turkey, if you started on a journey uh, from the east headed west, you would start in one of those cities, and it was like this route that was kind of circular. And if you started at one, he gives them in perfect order of how you would circularly go around. And then he says, I want you to write a letter to each of these churches. So we have seven letters to seven churches. And I think what it's for is not just that each church would get their letter and not the others. I think he wrote this all together so that all seven churches would read all seven letters. On the Lord's day, I'm in the spirit and I heard a loud voice behind me, write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. John, beaten in exile, but yet Jesus meets him in his suffering and his pain and he gives him this message. Why? So that the church would be encouraged. And in doing this, um, John would be encouraged. So let me say this. If you're in a bad place today, if you're struggling, and let's not just confine it to, listen, people are persecuting you because you're a Christian. Can I just say if you're in pain today, it could be physical pain, relational pain, addiction pain. If you're in pain, it's like your whole world around you is supposed to be set up to be really good. And it really is. But somehow in the midst of it, you can't shake a depression. That's pain. If you're living with any kind of pain today, and if I'm really, really honest, I would even include self-inflicted pain. (laughs) You made some dumb decisions and dumb choices. And man, you're just hurting over it today. I want you to know this that Jesus' power is with you. His presence is with you. And he has not given up on a plan for your life. And maybe that pain is the very thing that brought you to church today. So, um, I mean, we've got three points here about what Revelation is about, right? Point number one was that Jesus' power Presence and plan, it's all about this. Point number two is that it's the patient endurance of this suffering church. And point number three is this, that revelation is all about Jesus's power, plan, or power, presence, and plan. I I know point number three sounds a lot like point number one. And it is. You know why I did that? It's intentional. It's because you can come in and say, I'm a Christian. These guys that are baptized up here today, they'll be like, yes, Jesus, his power, his presence, his plan is for me. And then down the road, something's going to happen. 
They're going to lose a parent. Someone's going to get divorced. Someone's going to get sick. Someone's going to lose relationships. Like, oh, I thought people would be excited that I'm a Christian. Like, no, 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 you are not a part of our friend group anymore. There's going to be some kind of suffering and pain that happens in their life. And I stated point one and three the same because in the middle of it is this concept of patient endurance in suffering because it's the suffering people that need to be reminded of point number one because we're tempted to kick that by the wayside. Like, listen, I'm suffering. I'm not sure Jesus is powerful. I'm not sure he's with me. And I'm not sure he's got a plan for my life. And I wanted to remind you today that if you're in pain, that if you're struggling, that if you're suffering, listen, the book of Revelation is all about in the suffering and in the pain that his power is there, his presence is there, and he's got a plan for his church. So don't let your suffering whisper in your ear that it shouldn't be there. Because there's some Christian leaders that'll tell you this. Listen, suffering is not God's way. Like if you're suffering, then really you've done something wrong. Just punch them. (laughs) With your words. Because it's not true. The Christian life has been so much about suffering from the first century till now. Let me read this to you. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw Seven golden lampstands. Now, verse 12 is where we start getting some of this imagery. We'll explain it. I'm going to run through this really fast. Here's why. He gives this description of Jesus, but then he takes this description and he distributes it into the letters of the seven churches. So we'll address them in the weeks to come. Let me just tell you a few of these. I see these seven golden lampstands. You'll learn that those are the churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He's referring to himself, Jesus dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, the symbol of dignity and honor. You see, if you were a a worker and some kind of slave, like you had one of those short kind of tunics, like so it wouldn't get in the way, but it was royalty that wore the long robes. It's a sign of dignity. It's a sign of honor. And with a golden sash around his chest, sign of victory. The hair on his head was white like wool and white as snow. In the Old Testament, that is a sign of wisdom. His eyes were like blazing fire. It's a symbol of purity or the one who sees things as they really are. His feet were like bronze glowing in a a furnace. It's the symbol of strength. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You ever been to Vernal Falls? Yosemite? You ever try to have a conversation next to Vernal Falls? First, you're going to get all wet. But the second thing is just this, super loud. It's like the voice of the one with me. He's got this overwhelming power in what he's saying. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, a symbol of power and judgment. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's, it's a reference to the glory of God. And here is John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. Have you ever heard people when they they say things like, when I get to heaven, man, Jesus and I, we're going to have a conversation about some things. I've got some questions for Jesus. Why do they say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give Jesus a hug. John's experience When he has Jesus show up in his presence, he falls down in fear like he is dead. I think sometimes we treat Jesus like just one of the boys, just my buddy. When I think if he really showed up in this place in some kind of physical form that we could see, 
we would probably first be terrified. But second, he would put his hand on us and say, no, 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 fear not. I am all this awesomeness and powerfulness, but I, I love you. So you don't have to be afraid. And then he says this, I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's so good. He's like, you want to, don't need to fear death. Why? Because I got the keys. I hold the keys to the kingdom that separates those who will not have Jesus and those who will. And then Jesus gives him these instructions. He says, right there for what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that he holds in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I don't know if that means like to every church, there's an angel. If our church has an angel, welcome. The the word angelios, it's the Greek word. It can actually mean angel or it can mean messenger. So he could be saying this, um, write this to the messenger of the church in Ephesus which means probably the pastor or the person receiving the message. Either way, I'm not sure it really matters. There's just someone who's in charge of overlooking this church. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, meaning they sit right there in Jesus's hand. I'm tempted to think that they are actually the angels of the churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, stop for a moment. Seven lampstands, picture them around. Those lampstands are the seven churches in Turkey that he had listed. But where is Jesus? Up in verse 13, it says this. And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man. I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus pulls back the curtain on the first century to say, I want you to know where I am. The description is right there in the midst of this is the one who looks like the son of man and gives them an awesome description about what he looks like. And around me are the seven churches. When you suffer, have you ever asked the question, Jesus, where are you? To the seven churches who are suffering, I guarantee they they ask, where are you, Jesus? Feels like you're so far away. Do I have to shout my prayers so that you can hear me? Because I don't think you're here now. And he's like, I'm the son of man with all awesomeness and power, and I am among you. He's with us. He was with that church in the first century, and I believe this, that Jesus is with his church today. He's around us. He's among us. He works through us. He's not absent. I love baptism Sundays because it's the reminder that God still changes people's lives. And I'll bet there's some of you in this room that you looked at that and somehow your eyes started leaking because you know that that's what you want. You want a new life in Christ. Can I just say this? It's about a prayer away. A prayer where you say, Jesus, forgive me. I want you to take my life and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. And once you believe, the very next step is baptism. Can I just say this for anybody who needs to believe today? Do it today. Pray it before you leave. Commit your life to Christ. Accept his love and forgiveness. His forgiveness was bought on the cross by his blood, okay? If you want to be baptized, let us know. There's a card there. Just fill it out. Give us your info. We would love to meet with you, hear your story. 
and baptize you just like them. Why? Because there's new life in following Christ. I am out of time, so I need to wrap this up. What is Revelation about? It's about Jesus' power, presence, and plan. Last question. What does Jesus' letter say to the church today? Well, we'll get into this next week, but um, in the letter, it kind of has this, this format, this pattern it goes through. He says, hey, I have this commendation for you. These are the things you're doing well. Then Jesus will say, by the way, I have this criticism of you. These are the things you're, that you're not really doing well. Then he says, I have this command for you. Here's some instructions and then a blessing. Blessed are you who will read it and heed it. Blessed are you who will take these words of mine, read them and follow them. I just was wondering, kind of daydreaming with Jesus, um, what if we asked the same question? If Jesus wrote Church on the Hill a letter today to say, let me give you a commendation. You have done this so well. What would he say specifically? What, what did we do well? And if he gave a, a criticism, and he said, listen, Church on the Hill, you, you haven't done this well. You kind of messed this up or lost this along the way. And if he gave us a command, here's what I want you to step into. I want you to step into this. And if he gave us a blessing to say, if you read these words of mine, and if you heed their instruction, you will be blessed. That word can mean happy, a wellness of life and peace. I will remind you this. Um, this letter is not written to individuals. It is written to churches. And so I will simply say this. I don't want you to ask the question, what are you doing well and what are you not doing well? What is this community doing well? And what are we missing? And what do we need to change? We'll address that in the next couple of weeks as we read the letters to the churches. Uh, I do want to end our time, though, in prayer by focusing on this. Do you know his power? Do you know his presence? And do you know that he has a plan for you? Would you bow your heads? I want to pray for just a moment. Um, I've talked a lot about uh, suffering and people in pain today. And I, I would love to uh, just spend a moment and pray for those of you who might be struggling to believe that his power and his presence and his plan is with you today. Can we do this? Just keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed. And if there is pain in your life right now, and you're struggling to believe that, I want you to just do this. I'm not going to embarrass you. I will not call you out at all. This is just so that you can acknowledge this. Would you just put your hand in the air today? That's me. I'm hurting. Some stuff in my life that is broken. And I want to know his power. I want to know his presence. And I want him to really help me walk this plan out for me. So just stick your hand in the air today. I'm going to look around the room. I'm just going to pray for you. I see you. More than me seeing you, God sees you. Your hand raised means, God, help me. God, I give you permission to step into my world. So God, would you in this moment, would you just step into the world in a powerful way? I don't know what that looks like. Whether it's conviction that you want them to do something or that there's a peace that you're going to wash over them right now, or a comfort that they need. Or God, in all honesty, there might be a healing that needs to take place. God, you know their needs, and I would ask that you would meet them in a special way that is just for them today. Lord, I'm going to ask that you would show up and show off. Show off your power, your love. Show off your community, because I'll bet you there's 
There's people sitting right around them that would be willing to walk with them and be their encouragement. So God, we, um, we don't fully understand the book of Revelation. We admit it, God. But we are going to grab onto with all of our strength the truth that we do get. And we get this, that you're almighty God, that you're with us, that we can join your family and we can have a plan for our lives that involves you on the throne. And if there's anybody here today that you need to give your life to Christ, then you just speak it now. And I would encourage you with this. Don't allow your decision to be a secret. Every decision for Christ is personal, but it is never private. And so share that with someone before you leave today. And God, may your blessing and peace and comfort be on all of us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.